Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. My name's Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City College, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, PCA pastor from Harrisonburg, Virginia. I've got a special guest today, uh, uh, David Ayres, who is currently the interim provost at the place where I work, Grove City College, so is... Uh, is, I was going to say, is in some sense my boss. No, is my boss. David <laughs> is the man who has the power of life and death over me professionally. Uh, but we're not interested in interviewing David today relative to his assessment of my own professional skills or his <laughs> role at Grove City College. We want to look at David's new book, uh, Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. What makes David interesting is that he's probably one of only four or five uh, conservative Christian sociologists in the entire universe. <laughs> uh, and therefore, his approach to this topic is, is interesting on the grounds that it's not simply uh, addressing the issue of marriage uh, in a philosophical uh, direction. He's also interested in the, the sociological context and the sociological significance of the moment we're now living at, both for society as a whole and particularly for uh, the Christian church. So, David, it's a great pleasure to have you on the program today. Well, it's, it's, it's a real delight to be here. And, and as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I also have to preface these because of the interim provost role that I've, I'm speaking for myself as a scholar and as a Christian layperson, and by the way, with great passion on these subjects. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I don't speak for the college. I speak for myself. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's important distinction to make. Yeah. Yep. Great. Um, I well, wanted to, you know, before we get into the questions... <laughs> Uh, Todd. We've been hijacked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to suggest- toxic, toxic femininity. I wanted to suggest to David's, you know, a new title that uh, Scott mm-hmm. Swain and I came up with for Carl. Mm. Oh, uh, I'd like to hear that. That might be interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. for, for Grove City, though, you know, back mm. to the college. Um, we were having a discussion over dinner about this whole introduction of um, therapy dogs yeah. on the university campus. And I was saying how, you know, my daughter at her school, there's actually a room with therapy dogs open all the time that oh i love that she works right next to the room for the office she works for so she was telling me about it all the time yeah Yeah, so therapy dogs and we're talking about how this is a thing and and carl was kind of cringing you know and then somehow the conversation went to um you know it's a rather humorous conversation about how well what carl works with undergrads and for some Mm -hmm. reason though they come to him for advice and and when they're stressed out and I mean, you know, we know Carl and, and we see Carl. We don't see how in the world this could be happening. But yeah, it, 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 hit, it hit right. Scott Swain like a light bulb. And he just said, Carl is a human therapy dog. He is. Uh, he is. He is. When I am feeling insecure or anxious, just get me around yeah. Carl and all so, of that goes away. You know, as provost, David, I mean, you may or may not want to incorporate the therapy mm-hmm. dogs, but you have right. Carl. You have Carl. 
to help with any anxiety that might be going on mm-hmm. on campus? Mm-hmm. Well, utilizing my legal rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act, I've thought about getting myself <laughs> a therapy lizard and just kind of <laughs> just bothering the daylights out of everybody, you know, airplanes. <laughs> Well, terminals, I, yeah. well, I think faculty. a therapy lizard and, and a therapy car, I think, and I think those are very closely related. So. We're both cold-blooded, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you've also given me something that I now have about four months to figure out a way to make Carl's life really miserable. At our- <laughs> I, think, I think the students have yeah. already realized that he's really a softie, even though I'm, I'm really praying that the provost search is going exceptionally well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, back to your, so, your book on marriage, <laughs> from therapy to marriage. They kind of go together, yeah, right? Yeah, of course, of course. In your marriage, they do, Amy, yes. David, if I can ask you, what, what is it that inspired you to write this book? And, and what do you think your book provides that, that offers something unique to the contemporary Christian discussion of the state of marriage, the future of marriage in the West? Well, I mean, to put it in a capsule form, first of all, I I start where God starts. I start at the beginning. I start with design. What is what? How does God define marriage, and what does He define as its essential purposes? Which, lived out, have millions of potentialities, but boil down to a very few basic things. And, and the fact is, is that a lot of what's out there in terms of helping people think about marriage and do marriage is kind of up in the air. Because how do I tell people, oh, this is a great way to have a good marriage, or what's a good marriage? Well, it's what? Whatever you think it is? I think it's what God thinks it is. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, uh, so, for example, there are very few women out there suited to be my helpmate in terms of my calling, my personality, my inclinations, but for all human beings. Mutual support and helpmate is an essential function of marriage. It is a basic building block of society. It is staggeringly important and is the basis for family, and the family is in turn the basis for all social order. So there is literally nothing that this doesn't matter. And, and the other thing is that without without getting into theonomy, and, and you know, sometimes you get the theonomy thing thrown at you when you point mm-hmm. out that something that's basic to human beings is something that Christian citizens should be promoting for all human beings. Yeah. In other words, marriage as an essential institution and the vital, the vital realities of what counts and doesn't count as a marriage, which used to be distilled in terms of, if you're going to end this, is it a divorce or an annulment? Are, are you ending a real marriage or are you declaring that whatever you thought this was, it wasn't a marriage, right? Um, the, uh, the fact is, is that uh, Hodge in his commentary on the Westminster Confession said, you know, Christian citizens should be promoting this for all human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't because Hodge was a theonomist, it's because he was a Christian humanist yeah. who understood that the natural and created order is, is one in which we all live, and when we violate its tenets, it wrecks us. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to, to basically, when, when you go forward from that and you look at the sociological data and research, which is often manhandled by Christians and, 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 and used, used to pursue politically correct conclusions rather than truthful outcomes by non-Christians, increasingly, um, the, um, what you find is that it reflects that order, that when you, when you depart for, from the basic structure of marriage, you have all the pathologies that you would predict. Mm 
And the other thing is that so many of our basic questions, not to oversimplify, but so many basic questions just are simplified when you look at the, the, the definitions and the purposes of marriage. So, for example, you go to the Westminster Confession or you can go to the Catholic Catechism. You can go to any major Orthodox confession or set of doctrinal standards you want. And they will say that marriage is, is for procreation. Mm-hmm. And, for, and, and thankfully, the Protestants understood, and distinct from that, the legitimate fulfillment of our sexual needs. Mm-hmm. And the, um, so the fact is, is that that right away eliminates every other form of, of, of sexual gratification outside of marriage is illegitimate. You don't have to argue about every one of 10,000 different options because they're all encompassed by that. Nor, by the way, do you have to necessarily elevate one as being worse than the other, you know? Um, the, um, and in that sense, then, it, it basically bulldozes and answers your question. Once you understand that no marriage is really a marriage until it's been consummated, and the consummation involves the act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, gay marriage can never be marriage because mm-hmm. it can never be consummated. There's no way to do it. Even the British understood that. And they had to basically, they had to basically <laughs> say that gays are not a null marriages in Great Britain for non-consummation, but heterosexuals can. Mm-hmm. But what you're really saying is these, these aren't the same things. But right. are you going to walk away from over a thousand years of common law tradition and say, that, that non-consummation is no longer grounds for annulment. So the funny thing is watching human beings just butt up against reality, you know, and, 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 and in that sense, I like to think that in some ways the sociology done right gives me a handle on the natural. Yeah. While, while the Bible and Christian doctrine and Christian history gives me, gives me a handle on the creational order. Um, and in that sense, too, just to, I know I'm going on too long, but just to appreciate the profound nature of marriage. Yeah. I yeah. like marriage to a geode, right? On the outside, it's a very simple thing, like a potato, right? When you, when you break it down to an essential element, you look at your neighbor's marriage, and they look, it looks very plain, even if it's a good marriage. In fact, the better the marriage is, the plainer it looks in many ways. But inside, when you cut it open, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, this reflects trinity. This reflects the eternal relationship of the three persons of the Trinity. This reflects the most essential nature of a covenantal order. This is something God created that we enter. He sets the terms. It it, it demands things from us. And by demanding those things from us, it makes us better and it calls us higher. Um, It's, it's, it's to me, marriage is, is, is just a stunning creative act of God that I marvel at every day. And, and, and the degree to which over the, over the history of the church, and you see this all through the Bible, and, and you see this in the current age, the way we despise it, we minimize it, we, we try to reshape it in our own image, it just bothers the daylights out of me. And, and, and it bothers me partly because it dishonors God. It, it makes us totally ineffective in the culture wars, whatever mm-hmm. we want to call those things. But the other thing is, is that it it essentially hurts people and, mm. and, and the church is, is, is as damaged by their failures in these areas as anything else. David, you, you bring up what I think is a, a vital point and, and you were careful to say, um, you know, as a non theonomist. And I think that's an important point because um, unfortunately uh, some of the, 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 the loudest voices on this have become the theonomists and, and us non-theonomists need to be speaking with greater clarity on the continued normativity of the creation mandate. 
um, that that childbearing along with the blessed companionship childbearing is a part of the mandate for marriage now we understand that in god's providence and in a fallen world there's going to be couples who cannot naturally conceive children but norm you know all, all things remaining equal um th- this 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 newer phenomena of the intentionally childless marriage is problematic biblically is it not I think it is, and it becomes one of those things that, that becomes very sensitive. But look, if God has if God has said very clearly, and by the way, it's it, it's as clear as day mm-hmm. that, that 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 procreation is part of the mandate of marriage. And 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 by the way, you know, when you get into the New Testament discussions about is it better not to be married, you know, children are wrapped up in that. Yeah. And and so if if your ministry calls you to something in which you cannot do that in good conscience while maintaining obligations to children. You know, yes. you're called to be a missionary in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. Maybe, maybe children are not a good idea for you, mm-hmm. but that probably means, you know, that you should be celibate mm-hmm. at least for that portion of your ministry. Now, it, that doesn't mean by the way that, that there's something wrong if you can't bear children, right. that old people can't get married, that infertile people can't get married, that if you can't have children, you have to adopt it. I think those are all add-ons, mm-hmm. but, but that's separate from the question of, of intentionally withholding f- from God something that he says is a, is a basic purpose. It's like saying, I'm going to pastor this church, but I'm not going to preach. Yeah. Well, then why are you there? Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and we have churches that do that, right? They have pastoral staff in which they have non-preaching preachers. Mm-hmm. Well, wait yeah. a second. You know, yeah. I, I thought that the ministry of the word was essentially built into that office. In other words, yeah. you have no right to withhold that. Mm-hmm. That's good. I particularly found the section helpful, um, what to look for in a spouse. And, and so often people get marriage books after they're married. <laughs> and. Right. Right. I mean, mar- I'm, even just like what we're talking about, the purpose of marriage is so important to understand well before you enter into a marriage. And um, so many in our, even in the church, I think, have a misconception that, you know, this person's going to bring me personal fulfillment and that that is the purpose in a lot of ways, even though we know all the other godly reasons. Um, so I really, I really liked your advice on what to look for in a spouse, I found that to be something that I'm talking to, you know, my young adult daughter with and teenage daughter, even as, as, as they're growing, it's just things to look for. And I really appreciated that they weren't some of the, um, some of the typical things that you might hear in the church. Um, but they were, they were really wise and perceptive. And you even, you even say sometimes people find their match uh, falling in love, perhaps even suddenly without obvious cause, but that really isn't a universal or reliable in its own in choosing a spouse. And, and perhaps maybe even we shouldn't necessarily be looking for someone that we do love here and now as they might not really be suitable, as you were just saying, but for someone that we can love with steady affection on a permanent basis. And so I wanted you to maybe break that down for us a little bit because I think that goes against the wave in our culture and the romantic romanticism of our culture. And then what are some of those things that we can observe in people um, if we're looking for a spouse? Well, so for example, um, the, uh, and I've seen situations like that. You've got this great young Christian man. I mean, really phenomenal character, 
absolutely in love with your daughter. But that person, let's say, ha has a steady and very clear calling to the mission field. And that's something that you know as a parent and that she knows as a person she could never really do. Hmm. You know what? That's a great Christian husband, but maybe not her Christian husband. Mm -hmm. You know, is there a huge disparity of intelligence or interest in the written word? I mean, there is nothing wrong with not really being into philosophy or into, into literature and reading. You know, I mean, maybe some of us academics like to think that, you know, it's a sin. <laughs> you have to care more about auto, automobiles or hunting than you do about, about Kant. But, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, the Puritans used to, Puritans were so earthy about this. And they, they encouraged parents to, to really know their kids in a, in a, in a non-sentimental way while, in fact, also deeply loving them. And so the fact is, is that should there be a total disharmony in which there can't be a meeting of the minds, in which the interests can't be shared? Um, or, or, or let's talk about things like huge age gaps or, or big cultural or race differences in marriage, right? I encourage people to look at that, to look at the divorce statistics associated with that. Now, folks would immediately want to jump to, well, you're saying that these marriages should never take place. Absolutely not. There's not a sin in this. Uh, but the fact is going in there with your eyes closed as to the realities that you're going to be engaging in and some of the issues that you're going to be dealing with and not getting any kind of practical wisdom to begin preparing for what you're likely to have laying ahead of you by marrying somebody that's 25 years your junior or by marrying somebody that comes from a culture in which there's very little connect dots in terms of the music that you love, the way you do church, you know, the, the things that the way you get up in the morning, that's simply unwise. And, and, and so the, the fact is, is that a lot of my inspiration from that comes from, from the Puritans who basically on the one hand said, we're not going to do arranged marriages and forcing marriages and artificial, you know, marriages should be marked by real affection that grows over time. They should, they should be sexual relationships that are steady and deep and mutually satisfying. Uh, you should be physically attracted to your spouse, you know, and all those kinds of things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you have to be practical and ask, who can you love and serve with for a lifetime? And so there's the, for the Christian, there's the, there's the steady things that are just plain true for everybody, right? Uh, you know, there's, the person shouldn't be controlled by vices. They, they should really have a steady love for God and a deep devotion to His Word and to growing in sanctification and so forth. But then there are things that are so particular. You know, I, I, um, I knew that when I got married, and I, you know, I knew that I needed to get married to an outgoing person <laughs> who would connect with other people well and offset my tendencies in those areas to be much more inward and much more cerebral. Um, now, that wouldn't, you know, that, that doesn't mean that everybody like me needs to have somebody like my wife, but for me, mm -hmm. that's what I needed. And that's part of what I appreciate her still over 35 years later is that she helps me establish connections with other people that I would not establish on my own. And it makes me more effective and more happy. And, and the, you know, the fact is, is that how would I have known that at 19 or 20 years? Hmm. So, so those kinds of things are, I think we've lost that, you know, the, the ability to really understand. But again, if we go back to what God says marriage is and what it's for, and then we apply that to every single thing that we do, then I think those things tend to naturally flow out. And we're not going to get defensive when somebody points out and says, look, you know, it's not a sin for you to marry this person, but is it wise?
Mm-hmm. You know, it's good under the circumstances. Dave, yeah. David, one of the things that I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past, and and even this week, you sent me a, an article from a British newspaper, The Sun. Um, just as an aside, I remember having to do a project on British newspapers as a kid. And I, I had to buy a copy of The Sun, and my father was mortified um, <laughs> and, and insisted that I hid it in a bag when I bought it. <laughs> so logging on to The Sun site sort of took me back oh to that. My parents' sort of super ego impositions on me that made me feel guilty even <laughs> clicking on the site. Yeah, yeah, Hilarious. Yeah. The, the story was about, I forgot the name of the person, but he was described as an ultra-religious celebrity who's divorcing one wife, marrying, I think, Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. Uh-huh. And, and, and the sign of him being ultra-religious is I think they hadn't had sexual relations until they'd agreed to get married at some point in the future, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, that ties in with something you alluded to earlier, where you said that you know the church really is in a compromised position on this. The church is in no position to speak to the world about marriage. I wonder if you could uh, unpack that, expand on that a little bit for us. Well, sure. It, it, you know, the Chris Pratt, and that's Chris oh, that's Pratt. The guy, yeah. I mean, that's a great hook. And, and, you know, the funny thing is I kind of feel sorry for him because he's who knows how he's being taught or what mm-hmm. kind of advice he's getting. I mean, you know, let's face it, but it, it's mind blowing to me. Right. Mm-hmm. OK, so I didn't start dating her. Well, I started dating her when I was still married, but I'd already decided not to be married anymore. And we didn't move into to, together until we got engaged. Mm-hmm. And by the way, whether they were having sex before that is anybody's. But meanwhile, that makes him an ultra-religious example <laughs> to evangelical millennials everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we could go back. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to get invited. On, uh, by the way, I was asked by, by the PR person at Lexham, you know, you know, what do you think about the 700 Club? I said, well, I don't think they're going to invite me because of what I've had to say about Pat Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat Robertson said that if your wife has Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease, she's not able to, quote, meet your needs. Right. So as long as you can make sure that she's medically cared for, you are justified to divorce her uh, and and get married again. Mm-hmm. On what planet are you mm-hmm. justified? I promised. And by the way, that's I, I like traditional values. And I don't like making them up. Mm-hmm. You know, I promised to uh, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, until death parts us. Yeah. And that means if I be, if my wife becomes a human vegetable, and I've watched people live this out, right? Mm-hmm. The when did self fulfillment become the end of marriage? You know, and so the fact is, is that. But is Chris Pratt living out anything different than than thousands of evangelical pastors who divorce their spouses, marry their lovers, and continue uninterrupted in the pulpit? Right. Or, or churches that no longer really even ask with regards to an elder, okay, we noticed you were divorced 10 years ago. That doesn't necessarily disqualify you, but we need to know about that. Mm-hmm. You know, the first Christian college I taught at, um, it was very difficult to posi- get a position there as a divorce professor. And the board needed to look into the history of it and make sure uh, of what they were getting in terms of your biblical approach to that. If I was to even even suggest that maybe we at least show some interest in whether Chris Pratt's divorce to his first wife had any biblical grounds under the most generous 
interpretation of what that involves. I, I'd be painted out to be the biggest legalist and monster under the right. Planet. Right. And, and the other thing is that statistically, Chris Pratt's behavior is now normal. Mm-hmm. The overwhelming majority, from what I can tell, of young Christians believe that living together out of wedlock is not a problem, and their parents turn a blind eye to it. They don't really inquire as to what's going on there. Um, and um, part of the problem there is that we've made marriage a capstone experience. You know, when you've done everything else, you can get married. Mm-hmm. Marriage, marriage is not a building block upon which we build our lives. It's, it's what you do after you've achieved everything else. Well, then mm-hmm. how do I make it to 32 as a normal red-blooded male mm-hmm. without being sexually active? Well, you don't, but just don't talk about it. Don't put it in the pastor's face. And by the way, in how many churches right now would Chris Pratt be asked to separate from his, his live-in lover and to commit to a period of repentance and, and premarital counseling before they would agree to do the wedding. That's what they do in John Piper's church. Yep. But in most churches, that, that they will not require that. Right. And, and I've, I've at least been in one situation already in which I butted head with, not in our current church, that's so just to be clear, where I butted head with a pastor over precisely that question. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you make them go back to the start line and do this right so that they can focus on their relationship and, and get this right before God, before they commit to a lifelong union together? And yet people look at me like I've got two heads. Yeah, yeah that's, that's such a great point. And, and that's what we practice in the church where I pastor. And, and it, it, it shocks some people that, it that come to us uh, because that's not what they've seen practiced in their other other evangelical churches that if you're cohabiting, I mean, we asked them specifically in the very first interview, when they come to us and say, we want to, we want to be married. They're required to go through premarital counseling through our church. But, but in the very first interview, it's, are you sexually active? Are you cohabiting? Because all of that has to stop. If we're going to marry you, if we're going to solemnize this, those things have to stop. There has to be repentance of that. And, you know, that that's shocking for some people that have come out of kind of broadly evangelical churches. And yet that is one of the most wonderful things you can do for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And isn't it, you know, you mentioned um, just the incomprehensibility and the undoableness, if you like, of, of, of gay marriage. And, and we lament the, 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 the rise of that whole phenomenon and yet, really, the, the, the battle was lost years ago just in our compromises over, you know, quote, you know, real marriage between men and women and, and the compromises that the evangelical church allowed, which made then this incomprehensible homosexual marriage easier to become a, a perceived uh, a reality, just well, all the other normal compromises. Maybe this sounds like heresy. I don't know. But it, maybe it's a bad question. But what would be closer to God's design? Two guys who nevertheless remain committed to each other absolutely, and by the, I'm not saying that's even the norm, right, right. through AIDS or something horrible like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and somebody else who, in the name of God, with the blessing of his elders, is going to dump his wife because she's got senile dementia mm-hmm. and his needs aren't being met. Mm-hmm. You know, if if a gay person asked me that question, I would have to say, you know what, I agree with you completely, and I lament the fact 
that that people that I'm I'm tied to covenantally as a fellow believer do that kind of thing and believe that kind of thing because that does not represent mm-hmm. the God that I serve, who is unreservedly committed to me, no matter what, mm-hmm. and and I count on that every day. And if I'm supposed to be like that with my wife, how do I square that mm-hmm. uh, with? what Chris Pratt is doing or what Pat Robertson is recommending. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't square yeah. it at all. Yeah. And, and the fact is, is that it's almost like we can viscerally react to all the homosexual issues, but we've turned a blind eye to things for years that are statistically far more devastating right? Um, and far more common. The average pastor is dealing a lot more uh, with easy divorces or, oh, yeah. and sex outside of wedlock than they are dealing with a couple guys in their church that are yeah. remaining attracted to each yeah. other it's not care. even close yeah not even close yeah would you think part of the reason for that is that the church too has kind of embraced a view of sex as uh meeting individual needs versus what you would call what you say in your book a powerful means for expressing love and fostering intimacy between a husband and a wife i would say that that's absolutely true and it, it, it's a tough one because in some sense we do recognize that at a biological level you could you could refer to sex as a need i mean sure um one of the ways we know we need to be married is is, is when we know that we as individuals really need that and mm-hmm. it's not something that we're likely to be able to live without and nevertheless having committed ourselves to a particular path if we find ourselves on unable to have sexual relationships with our spouse, we're, we're required to remain faithful, and God will give us to grace. Mm-hmm. I know that's easy, right? It's easy to say that, but nevertheless, that's, that's in fact exactly what the Scriptures teach, mm-hmm. and, and it's true. But when you look at, at advice, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny, and I get, into, I get into some detail kind of things in my book that, that sometimes are even probably a little uncomfortable for some readers, like some of the Christian advice on things like masturbation and so forth. They really start from the idea that let's, let's, let's kind of come up with a way to, to let people use this as an outlet and figure mm. out how to define this in as narrow way. It's, it's almost the worst kind of causatry, causistry, right? It's like, how can we do this and have it not be sin? Right. Because the bottom line is, is that, you know, th- this is all, you need this to fulfill yourself somehow. Yeah. When did denial of self um, and sacrifice for the sake of something far greater than ourselves not become an expectation of the Christian life? Mm. Where in the scriptures does it say, sign on with me, everything's going to be great from here on out. I'm not going to make any unrealistic demands on you. Everybody's going to love you and think you're great. They're going to throw roses at your feet. Life is going to be wonderful. Um, You know, you're going to die in your sleep with your wife next to you, and then she'll die six months later. I mean, you know, this this, this is just not how life is. Right. And and, um, I think our churches are badly taught and badly led for the most part. I, I, I... Sometimes, you know, the, I'm trying to remember the exact place of that, that scripture, but basically that he, you know, he looked out at Israel and they were like sheep who had no shepherds. Mm. And right now I'm in the middle of Ezekiel. So some of the baldest, you know, decrying of the false prophets that were basically ruining the people so that they themselves are responsible, but, but the people leading them are so much more dramatically responsible. Yeah, uh, for yeah. what's for, for the state of those people. And I think we're at a moment like that uh, in the history of our church. I, I, it, I think at one place in my book, I talk about, I think, I think we're in a kind of a Malachi moment 
we're in a moment where God is basically saying to the church, you have despised my covenant. Mm. And you have despised the wife of your youth. And, and as a result, I'm, I'm getting ready to unleash a judgment on you. And, and what repentance is going to look like is turning your hearts back hmm. uh, to those fundamental covenants and commitments that you made and delighting in the things that God gave you. You know, my, um, the, the scripture says that I'm supposed to delight in my wife's breasts as those of a young doe. And that remains, that's going to remain true when I'm 80 years old. What's hmm. not beautiful in that? Yeah. What isn't profoundly beautiful about that? Why have we lost our ability to understand how, how deeply lovely that is? Mm-hmm. David, do you think, what, what role do you, do you think that uh, uh, pornography has played in, in keeping us from seeing the beauty of what you just described? Well, it's set up a false reality and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all through the church. And, and, you know, the fact is, is that it's so difficult, you know, when, when, when most of us were young, you had to drive somewhere <laughs> and embarrass yourself, right? right. <laughs> People passing by could check out the license plate numbers. Right now you can be three in the morning, you know, turn right. off the, turn off the history on your browser and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so my heart goes out, you know, I, yes. I think in terms of ministry and accountability groups coupled with a lot of compassion, my guess is that most of the young men at our colleges are struggling at some level with pornography, and yeah. they're going to carry the, the devastating effects of that into their marriages. Yeah. Um, the um, Harvest USA is very active in our area. I think they're a fantastic ministry. But, you know, the fact is, is that we now have a culture in which a lot of men would prefer pornography right. to a real woman. Because, first of all, they can create a fantasy reality. And second of all, their demands are being met with no demands expected. Yeah. And by the way, you know, we're, we're getting into artificial intelligence and, and, and 98.6 body temperature, fully responsive sex robots. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, that I, I've talked and people, you know, I, I think people think this is crazy or it's, 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 it's evidence of some kind of weird way I have of thinking about reality. But we're not very far from people coming to some of you and saying, I'm, I have a sex robot. I visit a sex robot brothel. It's not really cheating because they're not really human. Right. Right. I, I think we're, we're just about there yeah. and, and we're not even beginning to comprehend uh, where this is going in mm-hmm. terms of virtual reality. And um, we, we had a, I can't remember his name. He's actually a really good guitar player. But kind of a well-known cultural icon, blues guitar player guy, uh, who said, you know, he brags about his porn collection, and he said, I don't, I don't do women anymore. I don't need them. I prefer pornography. Yeah. He was, he's saying that in, 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 in places like Rolling Stone magazine, and, and young guys are lapping it no up. No shame. Yeah. And by the way, if self-fulfillment is what you want, why not? Right, right. Yeah. Oh, man, this is... Um this is such a, a fascinating and sobering uh, discussion. In fact, David, some of the things that you just described are becoming trends, for instance, in places like Japan, as I'm sure you're aware of, where an increasing number of young men are no longer sexually active because they prefer pornography, it, you know, sexually active. In other words, they, they, they are not engaging with women anymore in sexual activity uh, because th- there's a growing inability for them to do that because they're responsive only. Uh, to to pornography there are in america there are a number there's a growing number of 17 18 and 19 year old young men 
going to urologists because of ED, uh, because their minds have become so pornographied that they can't physically respond to their girlfriend anymore. And so you've got 18-year-olds going for treatment for ED. Um, it is, it, it, we're just on the cusp of something deeply devastating um, getting ready to happen. Well, and the fallout of it is, and, and you know, the funny thing is in the church, we don't talk about this stuff at all. Yeah. And yeah. it's a heavy topic, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there's this phenomenon out there, and it's, it's been covered by major newspapers called Partway Gay. Mm. And, and a lot of it is among young women, mm. right? And they're saying, well, you know, this heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual thing, I doesn't even, you know. But when asked, and, and, and it's kind of interesting, uh, and when psychologists and psychiatrists have delved into this, why are you turned off to men? It's pornography. Mm-hmm. The men are hooked on pornography and video games, and the women are basically saying, what kind of person is this? Yeah. You know, I mean, this is not someone I'm going to build my life on. Right. And, and so, in a sense, then they, they, they're going to go after their outlets, which tend, tend, although sometimes it's pornography, tend not to be pornography, but increasingly, they're t- literally turning in that direction partly because of their internal disgust and reaction to what's happening in the me- with the young men in their world. And, you know, for me as a parent, every day to think about that, you know, my kids are facing this mm-hmm. and, and that I have to somehow realistically and compassionately support them in this, you know, um, I, I think that should be on all our minds. Yeah. I, I really do. I, I, I mean, I know it's a really heavy topic, but, you know, we're not going to fix marriage unless we address right. it. Right. And, and uh, we can't adequately address these issues without coming to our people with a deeply biblical and robust vision uh, for what marriage is. And, and so, uh, we just can't help but thank you enough, uh, Dr. Ayers, for the time you've taken with us. It's a discussion that we could go on and on with. Um, it's vitally important um, to us as a people. It's vitally important that Christians get this right. Again, our, our guest has been uh, Dr. David Ayers of uh, Grove City College, his new book, Christian Marriage, a comprehensive introduction from Lexham Press is going to be something that you're going to want to get and, and read and talk with people about and, and give people to who are preparing for marriage and who are in marriage. And uh, if you will take the time to go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win a copy of Dr. Ayer's book. Christian marriage, a comprehensive introduction, and we would encourage you to do that and to get your hands on this excellent uh, book. And uh, while you're at our website, we are a listener-supported podcast, and uh, we'd love for you to consider giving so that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals can continue to produce this sort of content. David, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, We've really appreciated the conversation today. Well, thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. To our guests, thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Okay, so yeah. you're a speaker, yeah. and Carl is a speaker. Yes. Carl, how do you come up with this title? Plastic People in a Liquid World. That sounds very intriguing. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a way of trying to get people to come to the conference, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that interview is next time. Join us then. I refrained from taking any unnecessary jabs at Carl and Amy. I thought, wow. I thought, I, thought I did really well. Proud of you, Todd. Well, you know, that's what I, I do. I was just going to bring up how you're trying to return the, to the pre-Victorian ways, you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I am, I, I'm ready for corsets to come back. Yes. I'm, yep. Now cover mm-hmm. our ankles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Right. Or, or, or this, this should be my threat. Either women should start covering their ankles or I'm going to start walking around in yoga pants. <laughs> that is a okay. threat. Okay. Yeah. You, oh my. You have to live in Western Pennsylvania. You have oh 10 my. days. You have 10 days to comply. <laughs> that's scary. This is a hostage situation. That scares me into covering my ankles. I'm, 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 I'm holding the entire Shenandoah Valley hostage. <laughs> 10 days or I'm out in yoga pants. Oh, man. I'm sure that your wife will have some. Every. <laughs> so. The apocalypse is coming. Yeah. <laughs>